okay, we are, as you've heard, trying to describe what our church is supposed to be. Where are we going? Why are we going there? What's it going to look like when we get there? You, you know that we're in the process of raising funds to get some land and actually build a physical space that represents who we are as a church. Uh, and so it's important to not just make the building the destination, um, and we'll talk more practically about where we are in that process in weeks to come, but to actually make the kind of people God is calling us to be the point. Uh, and if you're looking in, if you're new to church or wondering or have been a bit bent out of shape by church, uh, my sympathies, this is a perfect time because we're looking at scripture and going, what does God really want his people to be like? Uh, And this has been hugely inspiring and and challenging. Uh, And today we're looking at the concept of our happiness, really. We're going to be as consumeristic and hedonistic as that. We're going to look at our happiness. Um, And I think it's actually hugely important. In fact, it would be irresponsible for you not to take your happiness very seriously, to really think it through. And I say that despite the fact that I'm fully aware we're in difficult times. There's lots to be sad about. There's lots to be outraged about. There's lots to be confused about. And at a moment when everyone wants to be up in arms and join Facebook petitions and potentially for a change actually do something as well as just signing things on Facebook, uh, and good, I mean, absolutely good that we should want to fix the things that are broken, it's always worth double-checking our motivations. And that's essentially what I want to talk about when we talk about our happiness. Because whether you want to admit it or not, human beings are motivated by their happiness. That's what we do. No one can consistently choose against their happiness. You are motivated by what you think will make you most happy. Some of us are better at delayed gratification than others, which makes some of you look more responsible than me or others. But essentially, we're all after our happiness. And the motive behind what we do is ultimately connected to our happiness. So let's make sure we understand it really well. And the crazy idea that I want to try and prove to you today from Scripture, is that your happiness, the big agenda of every human being on the planet, and God's big agenda, which is that he would be glorified, are in fact aligned. This is incredibly good news. God's agenda, and it's fair and right, is that all of creation gives him glory. That's probably important to just swallow. It's humbling. You were made for someone else's glory. You are a figurine on the ornament, an ornament on someone else's mantelpiece. Your life is not your own. You are designed to give someone else glory. But wonderfully, that person is amazing. And although he has absolutely got the right to demand that you glorify him, he, because of who he is and how things work, and I'll once again try to prove that to you from Scripture, His desire for his glory and your desire for your happiness are aligned, are in fact one and the same. They're not antagonistic to one one another. They're not mutually exclusive. This is incredibly good news if it turns out to be true. That in fact you can become more selfish and seek your happiness even more than you ever did before and take your pleasure even more seriously than you ever have and find that the end result of that is that you glorify God far more than you would have otherwise. That's going to take some proving. Um, But let's do what we can uh, in the short amount of time I have left um, and just just make kind of strangling noises if I'm speaking too fast, because uh, I know that that's a risk, and, and time is short. But I've heard that the Bible described as the sort of great instruction manual for life by some folks. And that's not wrong. It's not a dumb thing to say. The Bible is full of instructions, uh, and it does seem to claim that it is the route to a satisfying life. But I think that that kind of oversimplification leads to a really bad way of relating to God. The Bible can't just be a set of instructions that need to be understood and followed if you really look at what some of those instructions are. Um, Because the kind of instructions they are don't seem to be the kind of instructions that actually you can just choose to follow. 
the instructions that the Bible is giving you don't seem to be the kind of instructions you can just choose to follow. Yes, by all means, in the Old Testament, it seemed like there was some behavior modification instructions to keep us safe. The New Testament describes that the law as a guardian to sort of save us from ourselves. But what ended up going on in the human heart was even worse. And when you really take on balance what the Bible is trying to do, what God says his agenda is for you, it's to do something far more important and difficult than just behavior modification. God is not just giving you instructions that you can choose to follow. Let me give you a few examples. You're told to have joy. How do you just choose to follow that? You're told to fear certain things. You're told to have peace. You're told to have zeal for some stuff and to be horrified by other things. How do you just choose to obey that? How do you just drum that up? You're told to have desire for some stuff. You're told to be tender-hearted towards certain people. You're told to have a sense of brokenness and contrition at your own sinfulness. But if you don't find it particularly horrifying, then how do you just decide to be horrified by something? These are instructions about the, the appetites and attitudes of your heart. And your heart is not a thing that can simply be told to feel a certain way. You want proof? Your parents saw some people and thought you should probably fall in love with those people and saw some other people and thought you should probably not fall in love with them, okay? And when your folks in their wisdom decided to come and say to you, hey, don't love so-and-so, and what about Marge and Dave's daughter? She would be a really reliable, just speaking for a friend, um, she would be a really good idea. Like, you can't go, oh, well, because my parents say I'm supposed to love them, I'm going to love them. In fact, you all know how this movie really ends. You end up chasing after the person that your parents are telling you you shouldn't be interested in, right? If God is just going to tell your heart how to feel, who the heck does he think he is? I can't even tell my heart how to feel. How on earth am I supposed to follow these instructions? This comes to its most interesting expression in an amazing verse. I think a very underrated verse, one that all of us should know a whole lot better. Micah 6 verse 8. If you're wondering what the meaning of your life is and how you're supposed to live and how you might please God, well, he lays it out pretty clearly in this instance. Um, The prophet Micah says, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly. Okay, fine. That's an instruction I can follow. That's behavior modification. I can make some choices there. And to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Now, that's just a beautiful life that has been described. But I hope you see that already. That's impossible for you to simply choose. You can choose to act justly most of the time. You could choose to be merciful. You can't choose to love mercy. You can choose to walk with God. You can't choose to feel humble in the way you do it. What God is asking you to do is simply not choosable. He requires something to go on in your heart. In fact, what God is saying is that you should love mercy so much that selfishly you want to show even more mercy because it gives you so much joy. Elsewhere, when you're told that God loves a cheerful giver, the idea there is you should selfishly want to give away because it gives you so much joy to see what your generosity can produce. This is a big challenge for most moral teachers because most moral teachers would say that the goodness of an act is diminished if it's done for selfish reasons, right? The little kid carrying the granny's shopping for her is not doing a moral thing if, in fact, he's doing it because he wants to case the joint when he gets to her house and figure out where the weak spots in her security are. It's like, well, okay, well, if there's selfish motives there, then that diminishes the goodness of the act. In fact, let's not even be so blatant. If he's carrying the granny's bags because he wants to get the badge from Scouts, that still somehow diminishes the quality of the act than the kid who's just being kind to the granny, Right? wrong, according to God. I don't want you to just be humble because you're supposed to. I don't just want you to be merciful because you're supposed to. I want you to love being merciful. 
I want you selfishly to get so much joy from doing these things I'm asking you to do that it's the affection of your heart that leads you, not just obedience. What God is after is the changing of a human heart. And you may have noticed that that's tricky to do. Behavior modification? Possibly. But actually changing who you are and changing the things you want and changing the things you long for and changing the things you hate, you can't do that. You can't do that. And yet that is what God seems to be up to. And this is most interesting when he starts speaking about the way you should feel about him. So let's just go there. We're going to rattle through a bunch. Ephesians 4 verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Psalm 37. Delight yourself in the Lord. Psalm 32. Be glad in the Lord. Psalm 16. In your presence there is fullness of joy. Later in Psalm 16. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. Psalm 42. As a deer pants for flowing stream, streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. I'm used to the different translation of that, which says, so my soul pants for you. So when it starts to say, so my pants soul for you, then I got a bit confused. Um, but stick with me here. Um, Psalm 42. Uh, that, sorry, we just read that. Psalm 143. I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. How do you just obey those? God seems to say that something in your heart should end up so longing for him, so desiring him, so dissatisfied with anything else that all this religious stuff, all this reading your Bible and praying and going to church and so on should be a selfish act from a thirsty person going after nice-tasting stuff. Not what most of us grew up thinking religion was supposed to be about. Let's go back to Psalm 37 because when you read that verse and see what it actually says and compare that to what most of us have lived as though it says, it's striking. Psalm 37 verse 4 says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. You don't have to put your hands up, but I grew up in a church where I thought that really what this verse was saying was obey the Lord and he will control the desires of your heart or help you to control them. Your heart is evil. Your heart is rebellious. Your heart wants all the stuff it shouldn't want. And if you can just obey the Lord, then you might get that thing under control. Sound familiar? Others of us have maybe grown out of that and gone to something slightly more healthy, but actually still blasphemous and wrong, which is, well, do your duty by the Lord, and then he'll give you the really nice stuff. So not delight in the Lord, and he'll give you the desires of your heart, but like, Honor the Lord, and then he'll give you the really desirable stuff. Also, clearly not what this passage is saying. This is not some use God as a means to an end. This is not some deal with your own desires. What this is saying is your desires and the delightfulness of God were designed for one another. That the stuff inside you shouldn't be controlled, shouldn't be stifled, shouldn't be apologized for. The desires inside you are supposed to be something you can ride headlong into the presence of God and discover that he himself is not a means to some other end. He himself is the end. He's the point. Think about the stuff you're longing for right now. The stuff you're hoping for, the stuff you're saving for, the stuff you're hoping like crazy you don't lose. Those things that you're hankering after, to use old-fashioned terminology. Well, all that stuff isn't more desirable than God. And it isn't evil. All that stuff is a shadow of who he actually is, what he's actually like, how he wants you to experience him. 
Now, this all might sound a little self-centered and like it doesn't sound like really honoring to God. So let's just play this out in human terms. Okay, if you've heard some version of this analogy, uh, then don't give it away to everyone else. But let's uh, imagine some guy through the miracle of Facebook remembers his anniversary on time. Okay, uh, and is heading home that afternoon, and so he does what any responsible uh, husband should do, and he goes to Blockbusters. It's still a place, actually. They're still clinging on to existence, um, and, you, and, and hires the box set of Downton Abbey because he doesn't want it to turn up on his search history. Um, and so he, he gets the physical box set of Downton Abbey, picks up some chuckles on the way home, obviously, every bloke's superpower, and then um, gets buttloads of roses, and arrives at the door, knocks on the door, uh, wife comes, open the door, she kind of knows what's going on, because it's that, but why did you do all of this? Why did you go to this expense? Scenario one, he says, well, it's my duty, you've been a good wife, and uh, I just felt I would sacrifice watching sports, or being with my mates, or relaxing, or any other number of wonderful things, in order to, um, in order to, to, to give you this gift of my time and attention. It's my duty. Okay, option one. I can tell by some of your response you don't think that's a great option, but let's just go with, okay. Option two, he gets to the door, roses, chuckles, Downton Abbey, and knocks on the door, and she says, why, why are you doing all of this? And he says, nothing would make me happier than to spend the evening with you causing you joy. Now, would it make sense in option two for the wife to respond, nothing would make you happier? This isn't about your happiness. Your happiness doesn't enter into it. It's about my happiness, you selfish git. <laughs> and in option one, would it make any sense for the wife to respond, yeah, the, the fact that this is going to suck so much for you makes it a better gift. <laughs> Thank you for inflicting me on you. Like, of course not, right? Because your happiness in being with God glorifies him more, not less. So many of us come to God like the husband in option one. Well, God, um, I mean, who wants to go to a prayer meeting and to praise you for an hour? That just sounds like drinking cod liver oil. But, you know, out of duty, I'm going to turn up at this churchy event and go through the motions. And, God, you should thank me, really. I mean, this is the box of chuckles of note. And I'm going to read my Bible. And, I mean, it's like I'd rather read Shakespeare. This is bleak. But I'm going to, like, grind my way through it out of some sense of, you know, religious fervor and duty, and at the end of that, well, God, you're going to owe me one. And we think that honors God. We think that glorifies someone who, in fact, since before a single thing was created, has been the most beautiful thing in existence. This person, this heart, this character, not only is he saying, I'd like you to desire me, he's also saying, I am more glorious, more desirable than anything else. And yet we go and say, well, God, I'll I'll do my due diligence with you so that you can then get me to the nice stuff. And I'll love you for the things you might give me. Do you know that thanking God for the things he's blessed you with does not make you a worshiper? You're still an idolater. Yes, God loves to give good gifts. But if I'm praying to God that he will give me my health and then thanking him for my health and idolizing actually my health over him, I'm still in idolatry. Even if I'm saying, thank you, Jesus, so much for making me well. If being well is more important to me than being with him, I still haven't got all the measure of joy that's available to me. And please hear that. It's not you, terrible idolater. No, no, you're wasting joy opportunities if you're still thanking him for stuff he's given you instead of going to him for who he is. If I come to God because he will love me, 
That's great. That is how he is. But I'm still not a disciple. I'm still a consumer until I realize he is just lovely. The fact that he heals me and loves me and gives me a sense of security is wonderful. But even that stuff is the byproduct. If I'm still stuck there, well, God made me better. You are still wasting joy opportunities. If you come to God for the stuff you can do for him, and if you want to serve God, that doesn't make you devoted. That still makes you God's benefactor. You're not supposed to be his benefactor. You're supposed to go to him for him. And the result of that is joy, and the result of that is healing, and the result of that is that you will overflow into wanting to do things for him and for others. But that's a byproduct. And until I have come to realize that he is more desirable than anything, I'm wasting joy opportunities. I've spent the last six weeks trying to do this, just constantly going, God, I want to enjoy you as much as I can in this moment. Just praying that prayer. Because it's so easy to get into, well, I want to do things for you. I want you to do some things for me. Is my calling moving forward? Is the church well? Is this that? Please help me in this area and that area. And we can end up in this transactional kind of discussion with God, which still looks quite spiritual. But to just live a life of going, God, I just want to enjoy you. How, how can I enjoy you right now that I might not be able to enjoy you again? Because, you know, even in your pain, even in confusion, there, there are moments in your life that once those moments are over, you've lost the opportunity to enjoy God the way you could only uniquely enjoy him in that split second. And so when the sun is rising or setting, when the people are loving you or spitting venom at you, when you're being honored by folks or being abused in public, when your reputation's in tatters or not, when you are struggling with temptation or feeling totally free of it, in all of those spaces, there is a way for you to enjoy God. There is a way for you to really be interested enough in your desires to figure out, not how do I just satisfy this at a surface level. I just want more money. I just want to be loved by people. I just want approval. I just want that novel experience or that adventure or that achievement. Take your desire more seriously than that. Dig down to figure out what it is that your soul is really craving. Fan that into flame. Don't feel guilty and apologize for it. Fan it into flame and then ride it all the way into God's presence because he's saying, I can satisfy that. Your happiness and my glory are not mutually exclusive. They're one and the same. Trouble with this for most human beings is that like the moth that desires above all else the flame, even though it kills it, and no moth has ever gotten near to the flame and then come back and gone to the other moths and said, you should want something else. The thing that every human being is designed to long for, the holy, glorious God, will kill us if we get any near to him. Because he is holy and glorious, and we are not. We're broken and flawed. We've, we've broken trust with him. We've disobeyed him. If we were designed to be the ornament on his mantelpiece, if we were designed to serve him as our king, We've been in rebellion, and now there's no undoing that. There's no making yourself holy enough to be in God's presence. Throughout Scripture, anyone that wanted to get anywhere near to God heard him say, don't come too close. I might kill you. Priests and temples and sacrifices and systems are going to be needed for you to get anywhere near. But for you to actually see my face, which is the thing that every human heart is longing for, will wipe you out. Because you are corrupted, and I am holy. And part of what makes God so desirable is that he's so pure and holy. So he can't just compromise that and just push it under the, under the mat and pretend. And this is the thing that we get to enjoy about God the most. 1 John 4, verse 9. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. Friends, if you've not quite grasped this yet, if you've been around church and 
believed in Jesus but not believed necessarily in what he did for you, maybe this is the moment. You desire God above all else, and if you haven't worked that out yet, I'm trusting you're starting to get a sense that, in fact, sex and drugs and rock and roll, all that stuff is not, it's not that you desire too much, it's that you desire too little. Those are fake temporary solutions. If you just really took your desire seriously, you would realize he will satisfy like nothing else, and yet he is off limits to you. And this is the great tragedy of our species, that we are the moths, and he is the flame, and there is a way that he has come into this world, and the very rebels who are in open revolt against him, he then lets us mutilate and kill him so that he takes our punishment that we deserve and then gives you access to the very flame and now you can bask in its light and enjoy his presence and not be obliterated by him. It's just incredible. It's just incredible. Habakkuk, chapter 3. I get so excited when I can quote Habakkuk. See, we love God for, for who he is and part of how you know who someone is is what they do, obviously. And so we know he's powerful because we see creation. And we know he's loving because we see the cross. And we know he's just because we see the way he deals with sin. And we know he can be trusted because he keeps his promises. We know he's wise because of the way he works through human history. We know he's kind and compassionate because we see Jesus and he represents the Father. So yes, of course, you love God to some extent for what he does. But ultimately, that crazy prophet Habakkuk says, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines... The produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herds in the stalls. In other words, it's bleak. No good stuff is coming. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. The fact that Jesus came for you, rescued you, and has allowed you into the presence of God, God actually thinks that can be enough. That even if you work in a North Korean toothpaste tube factory putting caps onto tops of toothpaste tubes for the rest of your life, and you don't get into your sweet spot, no one thanks you for it, no good things come to you, even in that scenario, he can still be deeply desirable. And all the needs, all the desires inside you can still be satisfied in him. And until I have taken the dare on figuring out if I can enjoy God that much, I am wasting opportunities to have joy. I'm settling for less. All the good things that God does for us are great, but they're not actually the main thing. And until I can move past that and really enjoy him for him, I'm leaving a whole bunch of joy on the table. I'm glorifying him less than I should. I want to get practical in a moment about how to, how to enjoy something more. Right? So, oh, okay, cool, I'm supposed to enjoy God. Maybe that's new information for you. I want to talk to you about how you would go about enjoying something more. Because as much as you can't flick a switch and decide to desire something, there are some practical steps you can do. But just before that, I want to say one other thing. And that is that if enjoying God is the highest duty of your life, Okay? If this is the main instruction for us to follow, is to find him more desirable and more satisfying. If that will give him more glory, if that will satisfy us better, if that will help us to be less tempted by idols which in a short space of time promise to satisfy but always end up hurting us and in fact hurting the people around us, the things we chase after. If that's the highest calling of our lives, then you should know that it's the first commandment that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. And then the second commandment follows straight after that. And then you will love others as yourself. And the two are linked. They're not separated. Your ability to love others well, your ability to create beautiful relationships around you is first and foremost hinged on the idea that you could enjoy God to the utmost. 
Because we don't have time to go into this in detail, but as you're enjoying God fully for who he is, as you're experiencing him as delightful, that then frees you from the need to, to be needy in your relationships, and it frees you from the need to be condescending. Most of us fall somewhere on that spectrum. Either I'm in this relationship because I desperately need some stuff from you, or I'm in this relationship and I'm kind of pitying you and giving you some stuff because it makes me feel good. When you are absolutely enjoying God, then the enjoyment of God overflows into loving meeting the needs of others. And you do it freely. In fact, you do it selfishly. He's changed your heart so much that it gives me joy to bring you joy. Let me just... Okay, let's just, I want to perform an experiment on you briefly, okay? Because there's that idea that God loves a cheerful giver. That in fact, as you allow him to change your heart as opposed to just do behavior modification, generosity can become something that you love. So Jesus bumps into this rich young guy and says, okay, if you want to follow me, sell everything you have and give to the poor. And that sounds like bad news to the young guy. And his heart is broken. He goes, oh, wow, I still love this stuff more than I love you. And the church gets thrown that same challenge from time to time. There's this option for you to sell all you have, to give away your excess to the poor. And most of us hear that and go, oh, crumbs, that sounds really hard. I don't know if I'm there yet. I don't know if I have enough faith. Just play the thought experiment out for a moment. Imagine you didn't fear losing your stuff. Okay? Just imagine a version of yourself that wasn't afraid of losing all your stuff, a version of me that wasn't afraid of losing it. Imagine we trusted our Father enough that he would provide for us. And then imagine you cashed in whatever assets you have, and you've got this great big check. And then imagine going to some impoverished people, some poor people who are stressed about where they're going to find their food tomorrow. And you get to talk them through the fact that they now have access to 10 million bucks or whatever when you've sold your house and your family's house and your car and you've taken all the money you'll earn over the next 10 years and you add it up. Imagine the experience of being able to give some huge wealth to people who have nothing. Can you imagine how that would feel? Think about what their eyes would look like. Think about the experience for them. Think about how exhilarating that would be for you as you give away this huge gift. That doesn't diminish the quality of your generosity, thinking about how much joy it would give you. That's what God's after all along. Saying, I'm a generous God. I love to give. I've created you to be the same. In any scenario where you have some instruction about how you're supposed to treat people, and you hear that as some cruel limit from God, we've missed the point. He's offering you an opportunity to have even more joy. And anyone who gives in any significant way will tell you, it's the most selfish thing I can do. I enjoy it so much when I see people's eyes light up, when I see them feel the love of God, when I give whatever it is that you give. It's always more blessed to give than receive. You're supposed to be better at chasing your own happiness. You're supposed to be more selfish than you currently are. You're supposed to be more of a hedonist than you currently are. You're supposed to take your desires, your desires and then fan them into flame and say, okay, God, do I trust that you actually know the best way for me to see this expressed and satisfied? How do you enjoy something more? How much time do we have? Are we really over? Probably. Okay. Your kids are probably fine. Um, so let's... How do you enjoy something more? Okay, because this is the question. If he really is so desirable, and if it will give him more glory and satisfy me more deeply if I enjoy him absolutely, then how do you enjoy something more? Supersport helped me figure this out, because some time ago, in their generosity, they wanted me to watch more of their sport. Um, I suspect it's because it makes them more money, and so they decided to make me like dumb sports like curling and handball and things. And the way they would say that is, the more you know, the better it gets. I don't know if you remember these ads, and they would tell you stories about the people involved and the unusual rules you didn't know about and the tactics that are at play in this sport and the cool story arcs of this team going from nothing and now they suddenly have a chance at the championship and whatever. And the more you know about it, this daft sport you didn't care about, you suddenly are really interested in, right? It's how it works. It's how it, it, not just sports. If you 
decide that you want to enjoy music to the max, and you decide, I'm not just going to play around listening to what Roger Good tells me to listen to. I'm going to really take music seriously because I want to enjoy music. And you figure out the genre you're interested in, and now you're digging through you know, back information about the artists and who recorded what with who and when and in what studio and the collaborations that took place and why that music sounded so great and what instrument that guy played on and where that guitar came from and the backstory. And then you're digging through shops and buying old vinyl records and now you're some nerd who knows a lot about music. But you haven't gone on all that investigation and all that effort out of some sense of duty. You've done all that effort in the expectation that the more you know, the more you'll enjoy it. We were at the Philharmonic last week, Bern and I. We took ourselves off and tried to be all grown up. And we were sitting next to these people who go there regularly. And they're listening and they're going, oh yeah, this is Brahms. And Brahms took 25 years to write this one symphony because he didn't like it up until that point. And this soloist is out from Russia and he's only 18. And, he, and it's like, oh my goodness, this music that was just nice becomes far more enjoyable the more I know about it. Paintings, whatever. You can apply the same logic to anything. You'll enjoy something more the more you know. So when you hear God is enjoyable, that he is actually desirable, that he wants you to enjoy him like crazy, then any opportunity to learn about him isn't duty. It's an invitation to more joy. And you will put in the same effort that the connoisseur would put into understanding why this particular conductor leads that particular symphony the best, you'll put that same effort into learning about God, not because, well, I'm just supposed to read my Bible and pray every day and God better owe me one for this. No, because you're expecting to enjoy him more and more and more. The more you know, the better it gets. And you start finding him in scripture and seeing glimpses of what his heart is like and how he treated David and how David understood him and then how that ended up being the lineage into which Jesus was born and how Jesus is the perfect expression of what David was like. And you start to fall in love with this God. The more you know, the better it gets. And so your invitation is not to study because you're supposed to study. Your invitation is God is actually desirable. And the more you can understand his heart and what he's like and the kind of father he wants to be to you, the more you'll enjoy him. And time spent with him is, is an opportunity for greater joy and not some duty. And then the second thing, if you were wanting to enjoy a person. So it's one thing to talk about how you might enjoy a subject. But an individual... You know, sometimes uh, someone rocks up at this church and other people who I trust say they're really great. And I'm like, mm, okay, they haven't let their face know. Um, but okay, if I'm going to give you a chance and think you're really great, I mean, I'm just speaking like a douchebag here really, but anyway, if I'm like, okay, well, selfishly speaking, if you're going to be nice to be around, I'm not so sure, you've not treated me very well just yet, but if everyone else seems to like you, then let me just assume maybe there's something nice about you. Then the best way for me to enjoy a person, and this applies to you as well, is to decide, well, at some point then, if I'm going to try and get the best out of this relationship, I'm going to stop antagonizing them. I'm going to try and figure out, so it links to the first point, I'm going to figure out what they're interested in, what they're into, and then I'm going to do my best to have conversations about that, be interested in the things they're interested in, be doing stuff with them that they apparently love to do, because that's my best chance of discovering what it is about them that's so great. There's some golfers here. Golfers are not nice to be around until you go and walk around on the course with them, and then you see what it is that makes them tick, and then you suddenly start to appreciate them. The people that have interests and stuff that they're up to, and at some point when I stop antagonizing you and start doing the thing you're interested in, I get the best version of you and I enjoy you the most. Now, God is far more secure than any of us, so even when I am antagonizing him and not doing the things he likes, it's not like he suddenly turns into someone horrible. But it would make sense that if I want to find God enjoyable, I would go and get involved in the things that God is busy with anyway. 
Stop being antagonistic towards him. Start being like him as far as you can. Emulate him if possible. And then as you're doing these things that God apparently enjoys doing, you'll discover him more enjoyable. Where this ultimately goes to is do the things that God likes to do. God loves to meet needs in people. God loves to care for his church. God loves to fix things that are broken and look after those who are brokenhearted. There are opportunities to serve. There are opportunities to get involved. And sometimes it's like, well, I don't really feel like doing that. But apparently God is really enjoyable. And apparently he really loves children or whoever. I'm going to go and do the thing that God seems to like doing. And in the process, assume that I'm going to learn more about him and enjoy him more. Not out of some sense of duty that someone has to thank you for profusely, just because you want to have the most fun you possibly can in your life. You want the most joy you can get. And God is the root to the most joy you can get. And so the more you can know about him and the more you can be like him, the more joy you'll you'll have. And this concludes in Paul going, be holy for your father is holy, which is not some instruction to be well behaved, some instruction to emulate someone who's truly the source of joy. Okay, we've made the point. And this is the kind of church that we want to be, this kind of enthusiastically, intoxicatingly enjoyable group of people because they're getting their joy from God. Let's pray. Father, we, we repent of all the other places we've gone to for our joy. We repent of all the other avenues we've followed in order to have our desires met. We recognize that those were never going to satisfy fully and were always going to end up hurting us and those around us. And so we choose today to pursue you as the ultimate source of our joy, as the ultimate place where we will be satisfied. We recognize that it's you that our souls have been thirsting for. And as we chase you down, as we seek to enjoy you more, as we take our pleasure in you seriously, thank you so much that we can fully expect that you will satisfy, that you will be even better than you say you are. And we can't wait to live out of that place. In Jesus' name, amen.